Ruth chapter four, verses 13 to 22. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. There was an article in Christianity Today back in 2011. It was titled, The Gospel of Steve Jobs. Uh, Steve Jobs, the co-founder, um, CEO of Apple. And the article was written before he passed, which was not but I think eight or nine months later, but he was on his medical leave of absence. And the article was written by Andy Crouch. And, and in the article, he quoted uh, Steve Jobs from the commencement address that he gave at Stanford University. And he said this in that commencement address. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions Drown out your own inner voice, heart, and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. That is the gospel of our secular age. It's a gospel that promises nothing it cannot deliver. Uh, it's a gospel that, that gives you no hope. There's no hope that you can't generate yourself. That, that, Basically, in what he was saying there, that's the message. You generate your own hope. And that hope is really just that at the end of the day, you can be true to yourself. And, and the only comfort is that you are true to yourself. It's a wonderful sounding gospel, and it, and it, and it rings true in our secular age, but that gospel falls well short when tragedy or brokenness or sin hits. It's when that hits, which is our world, that that gospel becomes inert, it becomes powerless, and it leaves you wondering, and it leaves you asking questions. And the question is this, what, what is 
the hope that the true, the true gospel offers? Because it's very different. What's the hope that the true gospel offers? How do you restore your neighbor's hope? How do you sustain your own hope in a broken world, in a sinful world? What is hope rooted in? And we're gonna see it's rooted in the restoration of God, the hidden purposes of God, and the grace of God. Let's begin with the restoration of God. At the end of the book of Ruth, the, the focus shifts. You'll see it shifts from Ruth to Naomi, right? In verse 13, we hear that Ruth gives birth to her son, but then immediately the focus shifts to Naomi and describes how this child has filled Naomi, has restored Naomi, has brought life to Naomi. And that's significant because if you remember back to the beginning of the book in Ruth 1, things were very different, weren't they? Ruth chapter one, what does Naomi say about herself once she has come back from Moab to Bethlehem? She says, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And we know the story in between, right? We know what happened. She lost her husband. She lost her two sons. Her family was on the brink of extinction. She had no food. She was poor, so poor that she had to coming back to Bethlehem to the promised land was relying on a foreign woman, a Moabite woman named Ruth to glean for her in the field so she could eat. Right? Naomi was brought to the end of her rope. She hit rock bottom. And that's why it's so significant that we get to this part of the story at the end. And now suddenly we see Naomi who was empty being filled. And she's filled by what? By who? A redeemer. Now what's striking is that the redeemer who has been in Ruth, Boaz, suddenly shifts. In verse 14, look at it. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. That's not speaking of Boaz. That's speaking of this little child that has been born to Ruth, that this child is gonna be a redeemer to Naomi. This child's gonna fill Naomi and help restore Naomi. And you say, how? There's two ways. In verse 15, it says, this child to you, Naomi, will be what? A restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Nourisher of your old age. <laughs> Literally in the Hebrew, it means to feed your gray hairs. <laughs> it means... Literally that, that as Naomi is aging and getting old and she can't take care of herself and she needs food, that this child, right? Because she doesn't have a husband. She lost her two sons. Who's gonna take care of her in her old age? This child that has been born to Ruth becomes a redeemer who will literally feed her gray hairs, take care of her, sustain her in her old, in her old age. And then the second phrase, restorer of life. That, that literally means uh, to cause life to return, See, Naomi's problem was not only that she didn't have food, that was an issue, but she also didn't have an heir. Her family was on the brink of distinction. And God miraculously through Ruth provides this child that would be an heir that at least for one more generation would carry on her family line. And so you see this picture of Naomi, right? She goes from at the very, very beginning of the book while she's in Bethlehem, full, to Moab, empty, 
back to Bethlehem at the end full, and yet we see that the second fullness is greater than the first fullness because of the emptiness in between. That Naomi had these, these lost years that the Lord restored. There's a great picture of this in the book of Joel, in Joel chapter two, when the Lord says to his people in verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. And what the Lord is describing there is four years, Israel's crops were destroyed by swarming locusts. They had prepared the crops, they, they were growing, and then a swarm of locusts would come in and wipe it out. For four consecutive years, they had no harvest. And yet in the midst of that utter emptiness and lack, God says, I will restore what the locusts have eaten. Naomi was restored from lost years, locust years. And you're very familiar with those. Every one of us are familiar with lost years or years that the swarming locusts have eaten. Why? Because this is a broken world and we live in it. So what are lost years? What are lost years? Let me give you a few ideas here. They're, they're fruitless years. Lost years are fruitless years. Think about Israel, when they, the four consecutive years that they prepared the crops, they prepared the soil, they sowed the seed, they, they watered, they, the crops were growing up, and just like that, swarming locusts destroyed them. All that work for nothing. Some of you that are in business experience this. Right? A poor investment decision or a poor policy decision or whatever it may be, month after month, day after day, year after year of hard work, and then suddenly it's, it's gone. And you ask yourself, all that work for what? Right? Lost years, fruitless years, or painful years. Lost years are painful years. Maybe you lose a loved one. Naomi did. She lost several loved ones. And maybe you, you lose a loved one that you had a future with, that you envisioned a future with, and now you're left with an empty future. Wondering what those lost years are going to be like. Or maybe it's illness in your body or illness in your mind that leaves you unable to do the things that you had assumed you would always be able to do in life. And now suddenly, because of this disease or sickness or condition, you're faced with the reality that I cannot do what I thought I would always be able to do. Lost years. You can't get them back. Or, or loveless years. Right? Lost years or loveless years. A, a division comes into the family and, and, and breaks the family up and fractures the family. And kids are left in the midst of it. And you wonder these years that are so fractured. You wonder how in the world are these lost years, these locust years going to be restored? Or maybe it's your marriage. Maybe the love in your marriage has been growing, waning burning low for years, and you're in the midst of watching other marriages and longing that, I wish I could be loved like that. And so you're in the midst of these loveless years going, how do I get the years back? Or you look forward and go, are these, are these the years that I will live in moving forward? Or lost years can be misdirected years, the path you chose in college, or the, the, the career that you chose comes to a dead end, and you start asking all the questions. Right? The if, if only questions, right? If only I would have made that decision. 
If only I would have taken that job. If only I would have gone down that path. If only, if only, if only. And you look back on years that you look at that are wasted. They're lost. They're locust years. And yet, God says, as he says in Joel 2.25, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. What's that mean? How does God restore lost years? There's two ways. There's two ways. One, he restores lost years by deepening your communion with Jesus Christ. Right after he tells his people in Joel 2.25 that I will restore the years, he says in verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. He says, you, you will know that I'm here and that I am the Lord your God. You will know that I'm the Lord your God and that there's none else. You see, God's people who had endured so much enjoyed a communion with the Lord that they had never experienced before because of the lost years. And so the Lord says that to you. He says, I will restore your lost years by deepening your communion with Christ. And that's the, in the midst of locust years or lost years, that's the cry of the heart. Lord, let these lost years increase my love for Jesus Christ. Increase my communion for Jesus Christ. So he restores lost years by deepening your communion with Christ. And secondly, he restores your lost years by multiplying your fruitfulness. In Joel chapter two, right after he says, I'll restore your lost years, four years of no harvest, what's he give them after that? Bumper crops. Right? He gave them bumper crops. The, 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 the fruitfulness just abounded. And that's what he longs to do when we experience lost years or locust years. And some of you are in the midst of it right now. He says, I'm gonna, I am going to increase your fruitfulness because of this. Because of these lost years, I'm going to increase your ministry fruitfulness. I'm going to increase your, your fruitfulness in the kingdom for the kingdom for Jesus. And that would be the prayer of your heart in the midst of lost years to say, Lord, would you increase my fruitfulness that, that years from now, I would see ministry fruitfulness that I never knew before those lost years. That's what God wants to do. That's what he does in restoration. That's how he restores you. That's how he restored Naomi through all the lost years she had. He restored her. And your hope is rooted in the restoration of God. God does it, but that's where your hope is. Second, what is hope rooted in? First, the restoration of God. Second, the hidden purposes of God. The hidden purposes of God. It would have been a fitting end to this story to stop at verse 16. I mean, what a beautiful picture. Here is Naomi who had lost everything, was empty. And now she gets this air. And then verse 16, this, this little child is sitting in her lap and she's nursing him. It is, it is supposed to be a picture of just sweet fullness and sweet joy for this woman. And yet the story doesn't end there because there's a greater ending. Look at verse 17. And this is where the surprise comes in. The ending gets better. They named him, the child, Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Suddenly, this beautiful little story about a, a struggling Israelite widow, about a foreigner Moabite woman named Ruth and about a faithful man named Boaz, three characters that were not special. They weren't kings, prophets, princes. They were just three people. Suddenly, this tiny little story takes on a whole new dimension. 
that this child of Ruth is the grandfather of the great King David. It's like the, uh, it's a little bit of an older movie. I think it was 1998, the movie Ants. It was the cartoon movie about ants. And there was this one uh, neurotic worker ant played by Woody Allen. And he tried to win over the love of this princess ant. I think it was played by Sharon Stone. And, and it's this wonderful ant love story. You go, oh, how cute, right? At the end of the movie, what happens? The camera pans out from this little ant colony. And as it pans out, you realize that this whole story took place in Central Park in the heart of New York City. That's what happens here. You go, oh, this is a cute love story between a, a, a struggling widow and, and a foreign woman and this man Boaz. And then suddenly at the end, in verse 17, it's like, whew, camera pans out. And you go, oh my goodness. This was part of something so much bigger. Now, how does the author in Ruth paint the bigger picture? What does the author use for you to see that this is a bigger picture? Well, he uses genealogy. And he starts back up in verse 12. We looked at it last week. But in verse 12, he describes, introduces, describes Judah and Tamar giving birth to Perez. And then down in verses 18 to 22, we go from the, the generations of Perez, from Perez to Boaz to Obed to David. And then from there, Matthew chapter one picks up all of that and takes it from David to the Christ. And what we learn in Genesis chapter 49 is that God had planned this all along. Genesis 49, 10, listen to what he says. Through Jacob, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. God promised that the Christ would come through the line of Judah. And this story of Ruth is the working out of that promise of God. And so <laughs> the story we just finished, which is a, a story and there's pointers and it's about the Messiah and all of that, but we say, oh my goodness, this story is so much bigger that God's hidden purposes are worked out in this story through a, a struggling widow and a foreign woman, and a man named Boaz. And God is building out this story. Now, what do we learn from this? What do we learn from it? I'm gonna talk about three simple but profound truths that this speaks to. That the Christ would come from the line of Judah and that this story was working that out. First one, God's purposes cannot be thwarted even by our mistakes and our sin. Let me say that again. God's purposes cannot be thwarted even by our mistakes and our sin. Think about it. How did this whole story get thrown into motion? Naomi and Elimelech, her husband, disobeyed. They left the promised land to look for greener pastures in a godless enemy nation of Moab. Their disobedience set this whole thing in motion. Then when they get there, her sons marry foreigners, which is what introduced Naomi to Ruth. Then when Naomi decides she needs to go back to Bethlehem, she urges Ruth to stay in Moab. 
Naomi urges Ruth to stay in Moab. In Moab. Ruth, as you know, says, no, I'm not staying. I'm coming with you. So she came. And then they're poor. So Ruth has to go glean to get food for the day, like collecting aluminum cans, selling newspapers on the medium. Median of the intersection, same thing. Gleaning laws for the poor. She goes out, she gleans, and oh, it just so happens she gleans in Boaz's field, right? And oh, it just so happens that Boaz comes out at just the right time in the afternoon when she's in the field. But then it gets better. Then Naomi sets up this somewhat scandalous encounter on the threshing floor between Boaz and Ruth. Now, Naomi's goal was good. She wanted, to get a rede- she wanted to find a redeemer for her and for Ruth. But she does so through a morally questionable act of manipulation rather than faith in God. What I want you to see here is that you've got all kinds of actions taking place in the story from sinful, disobedient actions to faithful actions to courageous actions, and God uses it all to accomplish his purpose, and that is that the Christ would come through the line of Judah. Can't thwart God's purposes. Second thing we learn is that God's hidden hidden purposes always move towards redemption in Christ. They always move towards redemption in Christ. See, the end of this story, how does the author end it? With the genealogy, he's pushing forward to Christ. Right, the story could have ended with Naomi. It would have been a sweet story. Child on her lap, right? Hollywood movie, end it. <laughs> no, because the story does not end with Naomi. The story pushes through Naomi to the Christ in the same way that your story does not end necessarily with your comfort or your happiness or being pain-free. There's moments of that, But the point here in the story is that that your story ends with Christ, Jesus Christ, which means God is pushing through, through all the events in your life, the lost years, the good years, the blessed years, everything is pushing forward to Jesus Christ and redemption in him. And God's purpose is always, always focus in on that. And then the last truth, the events of our little lives matter. It's simple, but it's profound. Listen, in the midst of this story, struggling Naomi, widow, lost husband, lost her two sons, Ruth, Moabite woman, coming back, showing love, loyal love, hesed to Naomi, Boaz, this man who just owns property, he's nothing special, he's not a king, he's not a prophet. All these little events that happen in this story, God is using to weave together for his ultimate purpose, and that is to move forward through to the line of Christ and to bring in the ultimate redeemer and the one who would save us. And what that means is that that the little things in your life, the little events in your life, the things that seem insignificant, you may even think that your life is insignificant. And God says, no, it's not. I'm taking every part of your life and the events, sin, faithfulness, courageous, uncourageous, all of it, and I'm weaving it together for my purposes and redemption in Christ. So what is hope rooted in? First, the restoration of God. Second, the hidden purposes of God. And finally, the grace of God. You know, if you look at some of the characters in this genealogy, we did it last week, you don't find a whole lot of reason for hope. 
Uh, in verse 12, Judah and Tamar. That's a scandalous story. It's a story of deception, of trickery, of manipulation, of lust, of sexual immorality. I mean, it is loaded. And it, and it doesn't stop there. When you move down further in the genealogy and you get to verses 18 to 22, the surprise doesn't come in verse 21, but it hints us towards it. Look at verse 21. 21 lists Salmon as Boaz's father. Now, who is Boaz's mother? If you go to Matthew chapter one, verse five, it tells us, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz's mom was Rahab the prostitute in Joshua chapter two. She's the one, she's the prostitute in Jericho when God's people are coming in to take the promised land and to conquer. And Joshua sends, sends out two spies. And those two spies are what? They're taken in by Rahab the prostitute. She takes them in, she protects them. And she gives in Joshua 2 this amazing confession of who the Lord God of Israel is. It's phenomenal. Because she had seen what the Lord did through Israel. And then she says to these spies, will you be kind to me when you come and conquer Jericho? Will you spare me and my family? And the spies say, yes, take this scarlet cord, hang it in the window. And as long as you and your family are in this room, you will be spared. It's, it's the Passover. It's a picture of the Passover. As long as the blood's on the doorposts and you're underneath the blood, you'll be spared. It's all pointing to the blood of Christ. Under the blood of Christ, we're spared. <laughs> we're spared judgment. And so Rahab asks for mercy. And when God's people come in and they conquer Jericho, they spare Rahab and her family because they are in her house underneath the scarlet cord. She was an outsider. She was a prostitute who was welcomed in by the covenant community, by the people of God, by Israel. She was welcomed in. She was granted mercy. She, was, she received grace. Now ask the question, why did Boaz show so much kindness and mercy to this outsider Moabite named Ruth? Well, we certainly have a clue because he was raised by a mama, a mama who taught him how to receive grace because she had received grace as an outsider and to show grace. And so Boaz being raised by his mama showed grace to this woman, this outsider named Ruth. Now, what do we learn from this? I suppose we could spend about two hours gleaning some truth from this. But what do we learn from this? Let me just condense it into one simple statement. You can't be a grace giver until you're first a grace receiver. You can't be a grace giver until you're first a grace receiver. Right? Rahab was a grace receiver, and then she gave, she gave grace. Boaz, grace receiver, and then he gave grace to Ruth. Now, what do we mean by a grace giver? Ian DeGude has a wonderful commentary on the book of Ruth. He says this on what it means to be a grace giver. Can people like Ruth find a similar welcome in our churches and in our homes? Are they places where the last, the least, and the lost can come without feeling looked down upon? Are our churches 
safe places where people whose lifestyle are notorious in the community can come without being stared at and judged? Is there any danger of our fellowship being known as, quote, that church where all the sinners go? Or are we good only at welcoming those who are already somewhat religious, those who at least in some measure already speak the language of the church community and whose faces already fit? Each of us has a role to play in what people feel when they come through our church doors. And I would add through the doors of your home. Will we welcome them? Will anyone sit with them or speak to them afterward? Will someone make them feel special, important, wanted, no matter how messy their lives are? Will you make them feel like a person of eternal worth and value? That's what it means to be a grace giver. But you can't be that until you're a grace receiver. And you can't be a grace receiver until you believe that you're no different than Judah, that you're no different than Tamar, that you're no different than Rahab, that you're no different than Ruth or Naomi, that you're one of them. Why? Because you're descended from the same sinful family line. It's called the line of Adam. We all descend from the sinful line of Adam. That is who we are. And yet like Ruth and Naomi, we have a great kinsman redeemer. Jesus Christ, who descended from the line of Judah, this sinful family line. Why? To redeem and rescue that sinful family line. I said it last week. Jesus could have chosen to be descended from any family line. And yet he chose, and God chose, that he would descend from the line of Judah, a messy line. Why? Because he came to descend to rescue that line, you and me. Jesus has a messy genealogy because he gives us a brand new genealogy. See, Jesus descended from a, a messy line as a messy genealogy because his whole purpose in coming was to pluck you out of that line and put you in a different one, namely his, where you're a child of God, where you're a child of God with Jesus Christ as your brother. That's what Jesus came to do. And when he redeems you, he puts you in that line and gives you a new and a glorious genealogy that defines you, that names you, that redeems you. That's what your hope's rooted in. In his book, Deserted by God, author and pastor Sinclair Ferguson, he describes the the first physician to die of AIDS in the United Kingdom. He was actually a young uh, a missionary. He was a young Christian. And he had contracted it while doing medical research in Zimbabwe. And after he contracted this AIDS virus, he, he started to go downhill quickly. And it got to where he couldn't communicate. And he had trouble uh, expressing his thoughts to his wife. And it got so bad at one point that he was trying to express something to his wife and, and she couldn't make any sense of it. So he took out a notepad and he wrote the letter J on it. And so she started feverishly flipping through medical dictionaries and trying to figure out what does this mean? And she's you know, describing words that maybe begin with J from the medical dictionary. And then she finally says, she looks at him and she says, Jesus, question mark. 
says, yeah, that was the right word. He was, he was with them. That's all they needed to know, that Jesus, the Redeemer, was with them, period. That's all they needed to know. That was enough. You see, God restores your lost years, those locust years. He restores them through the Redeemer, Jesus. God accomplishes his, his purposes, sometimes hidden purposes, in your life, in your lives through the Redeemer, Jesus, and God extends and pours out and lavishes his grace on you through the Redeemer, Jesus. That's where your hope is rooted. Let's pray. Father, what can we say after this story of Ruth other than speechless? That your gospel is so astonishing. That you would, Jesus, that you would descend from a messy, sinful family line, that you would plant yourself in this sinful, broken, dark world, evil world, and that you would take that all upon yourself at the cross so that you could redeem us and give us hope and a future and transfer us from that sinful line into a glorious line, children of God, with Jesus, you as our brother. The gospel is astonishing, and Father, that you would do that when we were running headlong away from you. Salvation belongs to you and you alone. And we are in awe of being recipients of it, not deserving it in one way. Jesus, thank you for redeeming us, even though it cost you everything. And Father, I pray that we would not be hoarders of grace, that we wouldn't hoard it, that we would open up our lives and our homes and this church, that we would open up and be vessels and conduits of that astonishing grace to our family members, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our fellow students, those on our team. Would we be grace givers because we are everyday grace receivers. Every day receiving the astonishing grace that is ours in Christ. And as we close in worship now, would we sing and believe that in you alone, Jesus, in you alone is redemption and that Jesus, you alone are enough. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.